This morning's sermon passage is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we have sung about the truth of the gospel. We have encouraged each other with that truth. Now we have read that truth. And we are are thankful for many things, but above them all, we are thankful that it is true that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We pray, Lord, in your grace that you would, as we open your word together, give us fresh vision of what that truth means as it relates to our perspective in which we view everything in the world. We pray that you would refresh us with the truth of the gospel, that we would be motivated and cheered and given hope and able to persevere and be in faith another week because of your sustaining grace. Help us. Lord, and we pray now that you would speak through what you have spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I'm so glad to be able to be here and uh, open up God's word with you this morning in this, one of the months of your mission emphasis here at Redeemer Church. My name is Michael Kelly, and I'm the executive director of the Nashville Baptist Association, and we are one of the organizations that benefits from Your generosity, we're glad to be in partnership with Redeemer and approximately 195 other churches across Middle Tennessee that pool their resources together to help each other, to plant churches and revitalize churches and help pastors and raise up leaders and all kinds of things like that. And so thank you for the kind invitation to be able to be here and to speak to you from this wonderful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now this passage is about a lot of things. But among them, it is about our perspective. It's interesting to think about how two different people can see the exact same thing and yet have two very, very different perspectives on what it is that they just saw. Take, for instance, the month of May that we're in right now. LJ mentioned it earlier. You've seen them. I've seen them, too. You drive around every neighborhood in Middle Tennessee, and you see graduation announcements, parties, that kind of thing. Now, 
Two people could look at that sign in a yard and see two very different things. You might look at that sign in the yard and think, oh, here we go again. Traffic's going to be bad. Don't even think about trying to go out to eat for the next two weeks because it just is not going to happen. I can't wait till June gets here. You might see a sign in the yard and think that. Someone else might see a sign in the yard and think, that emotionally crushes me because I'm worried I have not adequately prepared my son, who is also a graduate this year, to go out into the world. And every time I see one of those little hats stuck in the ground, it makes me question whether or not I've done a good job as a dad. <laughs> Same thing, two different perspectives. I remember several years ago, right after my wife and I got married and we were living near Amarillo, Texas, and we were in that phase of life that you often are in right after you get married where you don't know anything and you also don't have any money at the same time. And we decided that it would be good for us to take our very first vacation. And when you live in that part of Texas and you don't have any money, the place that you go for your first vacation is the thriving metropolis of Oklahoma City, where all tourists go, right? So I took it on myself. I'll plan this thing. I will, you know, find the places that we should go. I'll make the motel arrangements. I will print off the directions because that's what you did, print the directions. So we drove from Amarillo to Oklahoma City, and we pulled up in the parking lot of our hotel. And my wife and I saw the exact same thing. But we had two very different perspectives. What I saw was value <laughs> and efficiency because not only did I get a great price on the room, but it wasn't far to carry our luggage because we could literally back our car up to the door that opened onto the parking lot and just go straight into the room. And then the next day when we got ready to leave, we could just drive the 100 yards to the gas station that was attached to the motel to fill our car up with gas. It's brilliant. She had a different perspective. <laughs> Two people viewing the same thing with completely different perspectives. Now we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and make no mistake that this passage is about how we ought to live but it's also about the fact that the way we live is formed and grounded in how we see things. It's in the fact that our perspective has changed. And with a changed perspective, you might look at something, the same thing that somebody else is looking at, but you might have an entirely different perspective on the exact same thing that is being seen. Paul tells us from the very beginning that our perspective has changed. He says that we don't see anybody now from the point of view of the flesh. And why do we not? Well, he tells us in the verse, next verse, verse 17, it's because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. If you are a Christian here this morning, that is one of the ways in which you could describe what has happened to you. That at some point, 
you became a new creation, that the old was gone and the new has come. Now, that is maybe a slightly different way than we typically think about becoming a Christian. We typically think about becoming a Christian in terms of destination. That is, we believe that every single one of us is a sinner, both by our nature and by our actions. And because we are sinners, we deserve condemnation from God. And so our destination, once upon a time, was hell, separation from God. But then we believed the gospel, and our destination changed. We are no longer bound for hell. Now we are bound for heaven. That is certainly true. But if we only ever think about salvation in terms of our destination, then we are neglecting many of the other ways in which being in Christ affects us. Especially in this passage, Paul doesn't talk about the gospel in terms of our destination, even though he could. He talks about it in terms of our identity. It's not just that our trajectory has changed, it's that Our identity has changed. We ourselves, at a deep level, when we believe the gospel, are changed. We're given a new heart with new desires, with new tastes, with a new family, with new goals, with new priorities. The old is gone and the new has come. And one of the things that's new is our perspective. That's the reason that we no longer regard anyone with a from a point of view of the flesh, is because the old is gone and the new has come. We're in Christ. We have a new set of lenses through which we see everything else. Now, Paul drills down in the rest of this passage, and he identifies three particular people that we no longer view in the old way. So let's talk about who those three people are. Paul says we don't know anyone from a worldly perspective, from a fleshly perspective. The first person that we no longer know from a worldly perspective is Christ. We no longer see Jesus from a worldly perspective. Even though Paul says he used to see Christ in this way. No doubt. Paul, as a zealous Pharisee, used to regard Jesus in a very different way than he does when he's writing 2 Corinthians. He looked at Jesus and he saw someone who was born in obscurity. Someone who did not receive the same professional training or educational accolades that Paul received as part of his training. Someone who did not conform to the cultural norms of the day. Someone who seemed to have no regard for institutional authority. And someone, worst of all, who through the things that he claimed for himself and did himself, was blasphemous. Paul looked at all of those things and regarded Jesus as someone who surely could not absolutely be the Messiah, the chosen one of God that the children of Israel had waited for for so long. And from that point of view, when Jesus Christ was crucified, Paul's attitude was, see, I told you. Scorned, mocked, disgraced, humiliated, hung on a tree, surely this man is stricken by God. But then his perspective changed. And it changed dramatically. 
And Paul no longer regarded Christ from the perspective of the flesh. In fact, he introduced his first letter to the same people that he's writing this letter to, the Corinthians, in talking about how this perspective had reversed. Here's what he wrote back in the book of 1 Corinthians. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. His perspective on Christ changed. And you, if you're a Christian this morning, your perspective on Christ changed at some point. There's any number of ways at one point that you might have regarded Jesus. You might have seen Jesus as a great moral teacher, or you might have seen Jesus as a misunderstood political revolutionary, or you might have seen Jesus as the greatest hoax that has ever been perpetuated upon humankind. You might have thought, here is someone from history that I could extract a few teachings from to help me live a a better life, but your perspective has changed, and now you regard Jesus differently. You know that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You know that in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. You know that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Your perspective on Jesus has changed. Now, when you regard Jesus, you don't regard him from the position and the posture of the flesh. You come to see that Jesus is not only the savior of your personal soul. You come to see that Jesus is literally the linchpin in which every molecule of being actually holds together. He is the center of the universe. And in your life, he's not just one piece of your very busy and complicated existence. No, Jesus is the absolute center of your life too. That in him, all you hold together. He's the center of your marriage and your parenting and your career and your finances and every other thing that you engage in. Jesus is the center and by the center, It holds together in the sense that he defines everything that you do and gives you new purpose, new reason as that linchpin. You no longer regard Christ in a fleshly way. You see him differently, just as Paul did. That's person number one. Paul says that we no longer regard from a worldly point of view. Person number two, he says, that we don't regard from a worldly point of view is ourselves. We no longer see ourselves the way that we used to see ourselves now that we are a new creation in Christ. Now, just like the way that you saw Jesus before you became a Christian might be any number of ways, so also the way that you saw yourself before you became a Christian might be any number of different ways. You might have regarded yourself before Christ in a too esteemed position, that you were the captain of your own ship, you were the charter of your own destiny, that you were the person who was smart enough or clever enough or or manipulative enough that you could configure any amount of circumstances to your own ends to get you exactly where you 
wanted to be in life. You were the one who was going to really make something of yourself, and anybody that stood in your way was just going to get steamrolled. You might have had that opinion of yourself. Now, conversely, before Christ, you might have had too low of an opinion of yourself. You might have looked in the mirror and seen an accident. You might have considered the way that you were put together physically or emotionally or psychologically or mentally as some kind of cosmic mistake. And in regarding yourself, you might have thought that you don't have anything to offer anybody at any time, and you don't even really know why you're here, and the best thing that you can do is just sort of muddle your way through life and hopefully not get in anyone's way too much or even be noticed at all. Too low of an opinion of yourself. But now that you are in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. And the old way of regarding yourself is gone. And a new way of regarding yourself has come. So how should you regard yourself in this new perspective? Well, the Bible gives you any number of ways. You should regard yourself as a son or a daughter of the king, as a co-heir with Jesus Christ, as a saint that has been saved by grace, as a member of the body of Christ, as a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. We could go on and on and on, but the specific way that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that you should regard yourself in this new perspective is as an ambassador. That's how you should see yourself. So whether you see yourself also as a mom or a dad or a doctor or a plumber or a lawyer or a teacher or whatever else that you, should, you regard yourself as personally, you must also regard yourself as an ambassador of Christ. Now, as I understand it, being an ambassador can mean a lot of different things depending on the particular setting in which you find yourself being an ambassador. So for the sake of argument, let's just narrow it down to three things that all ambassadors have in common. And maybe they would be these. Thing number one is that you have a nation of origin as an ambassador. Thing number two, you have a temporary station as an ambassador. And thing number three, every ambassador has themselves, the actual ambassador. So the ambassador is appointed for a given time to live in a nation that is not their own. And while they are there, they are the appointed representative of their home nation or country. They don't represent their own interests. They don't represent their own opinions. They are there to represent the interests and the policies of the nation that has sent them. When a person is serving as an ambassador then, Everything they do is taken as a, represent, as a representation of their nation. Now, that has all kinds of implications for us, but let me just give you two of them. Implication number one, if that is true, and you're to regard yourself as an ambassador of Christ, implication number one means you don't just carry a message. You are the message. Think back to that earlier example of the early marriage trip of the Kellys from Texas to Oklahoma. Let's just say for the sake of argument that, that Texas and Oklahoma were two different nations, and we were going on a, a trip from the sovereign nation of Texas, which if you're, if you're from Texas, you realize that this is not too much of a stretch to think about. 
We're going from the sovereign nation of Texas on a diplomatic mission to the sovereign nation of Oklahoma. We're the ambassadors from one nation to another. So we get there and we have a meeting later that day. And I, as the ambassador from the nation of Texas to the nation of Oklahoma, say something in that meeting like, there should no longer be motels attached to gas stations. The takeaway for the people in that meeting from the nation of Oklahoma is not going to be Ambassador Kelly really has the opinion that hotels attached to gas stations are a bad thing. No, no, no. The takeaway is the sovereign nation of Texas has as its policy that no gas stations shall be attached to motels. Do you see it? What that means if you're an ambassador is there is no downtime. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, whatever you're watching, whatever arena that you're in, you are an ambassador of Christ, whether or not you want to be. You don't just deliver the message, even though you do deliver the message, you are the message. You are the message on the soccer field, you are the message in the bank. You are the message at the park, in the movie theater. You're the message in your own home. You are the message. You don't just carry it. You are the message. That's the first implication. Here's implication number two. Being an ambassador is linked to relationship. And it is unbreakably linked to relationship. Notice that when Paul describes that we are ambassadors here, he chooses to say that we are ambassadors of reconciliation. Reconciliation by its nature is about relationship. He doesn't, for example, say that you are ambassadors of justification. Now, he might have said that because we do have a message about justification. But justification is a legal term. It's, it's used in the courts. If you want a mental image, imagine that there's a defendant sitting over here and the evidence is absolutely incontrovertibly, you know, totally proves that this person is guilty and the judge behind the bench brings the gavel down and declares, despite the evidence, that that person is not guilty. Well, that is a declaration that is made in a legal sense. And that has happened to us. God has done that for us. And that is part of the message that we carry is that God has declared us to be not guilty in Christ. But that's not what Paul says here. He says, you're an ambassador of reconciliation. And reconciliation is not just about a declaration. It is about Relationship. Relationship is personal. If you think back to the earlier example, the, ju the judge that's sitting here might acquit the accused without ever entering into a relationship with that person. In fact, as soon as that gavel comes down, the person that's sitting there is probably going to get out of the courtroom as quickly as possible for fear that that judge will change their mind. But because the content of the ministry is reconciliation, Paul doesn't just proclaim something. Re 
Reconciliation requires that a person becomes an active reconciler themselves. It plunges us into the midst of other people's lives. This is what it means to be an ambassador of reconciliation. In fact, if you bring those two implications together, here's what you find. That Christians live the message of reconciliation to an estranged world. Now, there's any number of ways that that happens, right? But let me give you just one, just one, maybe the simplest and most practical and even easiest way to practice the principle that Christians live the message of reconciliation. It is the same implication that has been pivotal for the growth of the church for the last 2,000 years. It is hospitality. Surprising, right? Because when you think about the spiritual gifts that we find lined up in the New Testament, you don't typically think about being gifted in hospitality as being near the top of the list. It's not one of the flashier kind of gifts. And yet it's interesting that the list that the New Testament provides us about qualifications for church leaders, it appears again and again and again. For the early church, hospitality was absolutely vital because as the message of Christianity spread to new cities, it it had to take hold somewhere. You had to welcome people into your home. And today, in a world that is increasingly keeping each other at arm's length, what an incredible way to demonstrate the message of, to live the message of reconciliation and to be ambassador as to practice hospitality. Now, when we say hospitality, we don't just mean making a casserole, although that's a really good idea. Hospitality is a posture by which you are welcoming other people. Welcoming other people to what? Welcoming other people to whatever. To this, to this church, to this home, to this baseball team. To this park, to this gym, it is welcoming people in. And welcoming people in because that's what God has done for us. When you think about hospitality at a base level, hospitality, the word itself is made up of two words. The word for love and the word for stranger. That's what hospitality is. It is literally the practice of the love of strangers. And isn't this what God did in the gospel for us? When we were strangers and aliens, God took us in. When we were without a home and a family, God brought us into his. When we were without hope in the world, God adopted us as his children. In the ultimate act of hospitality, God provided a way to welcome us through the death of Jesus Christ. God is ultimately hospitable. And therefore, hospitality is a characteristic that is hardwired into the spiritual DNA for all those who have experienced God's divine hospitality. This is one of the simplest ways we can begin to live as ambassadors of reconciliation to an estranged world. So we shouldn't regard Jesus from an old perspective anymore. We shouldn't regard ourselves from an old perspective anymore. And then there's one other person that we have a new perspective about, and that is literally everyone else. We should not regard other people any longer from the perspective of the 
flesh. And one of the things that that means is that there is a certain amount of sobriety that we need to approach other human beings with. Now, that, that doesn't mean that we don't do small talk, and it doesn't mean that we don't tell jokes and laugh with each other. It doesn't mean that we don't watch football games, but it, it does mean that we begin to grasp in everyday ways and in everyday conversations just who it is that we are dealing with. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as is the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind and is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. This is how you regard someone no longer from the perspective of the flesh is that you begin to realize just who it is that you are dealing with and the person that you are dealing with is always regardless of their education or nationality or political persuasion or skin color an image bearer of God I have to wonder if this is particularly meaningful to Paul as he's writing this passage. Because he knew very well what it meant for someone to no longer regard him from the perspective of the flesh. You might remember that Paul wasn't always called Paul. He was called Saul. And back in the days when he was a Pharisee, he was very proud of his zeal in defending the name of his God. But then on a trip to Damascus, he quite literally was knocked off his high horse. He had a vision of Jesus, and the vision of Jesus knocked him to the ground and left him blinded, which was actually an appropriate metaphor for his life at that time, since he had been blinded up to that point about the truth of the gospel. So he encounters Jesus on the Damascus Road. He is led into the city by his companions. And for three days, he is blind. He's blind in a room. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He doesn't bathe. For three days, he's left to consider what kind of life he has led up to that point and the kind of life he's going to lead from that point. 72 hours of deep reflection. What have I done? How could I have been so wrong? And what do I do now? Saul was in a place of confusion, a place of darkness, a place of wondering about the nature of the world and his own place in it. And at the same time, Paul was crouched in the corner of that room. The Lord was calling someone else. 
in Acts chapter 9, we find it. It says, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And that's all we get. We don't know anything else about this brother. We don't know how old or how young he was. We don't know how long he had been a believer in Jesus. We don't know if he's married or unmarried. We don't know if he's educated or not educated. We have no idea what he does for a living. In fact, after these few lines, he is going to disappear like a ghost from the pages of Scripture. But the Lord called him, and Ananias said, Here I am, Lord. And Jesus said, Get up and go to the street called Straight, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so he can regain his sight. Now, Ananias is understandably a little nervous about this call of Jesus. Lord, he says, I have heard a lot of stuff about this guy. I've heard how much harm he has done to your servants in Jerusalem. And I have heard that he's even got the authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, to kings, and to Israelites. And though he was nervous, when it came down to it, Ananias went. He went to the street called Straight. He knocked on the door. His heart was beating fast. It opened, and there in the corner, crouched, was a man, dirty, hungry, thirsty. And the first word that came out of Ananias' mouth was, Brother. He says, Brother Saul, despite his reputation, despite his past experience, despite all of the misconceptions he could have brought to that conversation, the first word that came out of his mouth was brother. And maybe that was the first moment when Paul experienced what it felt like for someone else to not regard you from the perspective of the flesh. And so now he says to the Corinthians and to us today, the old is gone and the new has come. And because it has, you don't regard Jesus the way that you used to. You don't regard yourself the way that you used to. And you certainly don't regard other people the way that you used to. You are ambassadors of reconciliation in a world that is estranged from God. Live this calling, he says, and may it be so in our lives as well. Let me pray for us to that end this morning. Father, thank you for this call that you have given us, and we do pray that you would give us, even as we continue to worship for the next few minutes, that you would refresh our vision, that we would no longer regard Jesus or ourselves, or others in a purely fleshly way, that we would embrace the fact that the new has come, and with that newness comes a new perspective. We pray that we would see those things differently, and that our sight, our vision, would motivate us to act in a different way. 
May it be so. We pray that it would be in Jesus' name. Amen.